Hello, and welcome to Represent the Podcast, the show where I, Katie Beth McKinney, sit down with composers from historically marginalized and underrepresented backgrounds and discuss their works for the horn. Hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Represent the Podcast, the show where I talk with I, Katie Beth McKinney, I keep forgetting to introduce myself in these things, <laughs> talk to composers um, from historically marginalized uh, backgrounds. Uh, who write for the horn. And so today I'm really excited to have Dr. Catherine Lacuta with us today. And she is a pianist and composer extraordinaire who has a huge body of work for the horn. And uh, thank you, Kathy, for being here. I'm so excited to talk to you. <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I, I love talking to horn people and I love talking about horn music. And I just love talking. Well, you know, that's why we're here is we both love talking, right? And you just got off a big tour doing horn stuff. So this is perfect timing. I mean, we'll get into all that. It's going to be great. And you're in Australia for listeners who don't know. So this is fun. We have a crazy time difference going on, which is lovely. (laughs) That'll be wonderful. Great. So I'm just going to dive right in. Um, How did you get started in music and composition? Yeah, uh, well, I got started in music um, because I didn't have any other choice. I had musicians uh, on both sides of my family. Um, Everybody was the exception of two family members, like distant relatives. Everybody else was a musician. And uh, I started showing interest in music and talent for music at a very young age. And then my parents set me at the piano when I was about four and a half. And I started jamming jazz like crazy because I was listening to jazz all the time my dad played jazz um records nonstop in the house and so that's and my parents were like okay so maybe you need to do music and so (laughs) I started I played my first concert when I was five and a half I played in in a tree with my jazz piano teacher um 16 year old son who played bass and the 18 year old son who played drums and uh yeah then uh, um loved the stage and um loved performing and then i we added classical piano to my studies and i did two side by side until my undergrad and in undergrad i did two side by side as well and i have a degree in both and then when i was finishing my undergrad i um kind of started to want something different because in Ukraine when you you hardly ever do just undergrad in music uh in music you usually like if you commit to music you do higher degree as well the conservatory and uh my mom my grandma did that and uh so it was expected that I would do that and it was my absolute dream to do that and then when it was time to apply there um we realized that they don't have jazz piano they only have classical piano and I didn't want to study just classical piano for me it was boring and I didn't want to play Mozart concerti with and competing against all the other pianists and practicing seven hours a day and you know all that so and I wanted something more creative for my liking and uh, I um, I played in a jazz ensemble, which was part of the curriculum. And it was just a bunch of my friends who we all studied together. And uh, I was the pianist in the ensemble. So it was my job to uh, transcribe some of the famous uh, jazz recordings and write them down with all the improvisations and everything. And I hated doing that, but it set <laughs> me up really well as a composer to write down my own stuff. But then I... Um, uh, then my friend said, why don't you try to write something of your own, you know? And uh, I said, okay. So I wrote two little tunes and orche- like orchestrated them for 
this ensemble, which was about seven people or so. And I brought it to the rehearsal and we played it and, and you know, it was probably crap. Like I can't remember, <laughs> but they, but they loved it. Like my friends loved it to absolute bits. And I was only, I was 18 years old, but I remember that feeling like it was more than two decades ago. And I remember the feeling how, amazing it felt that that your friends were in love with your music and I was like I think I want to do that for the rest of my life and this is kind of how I decided to that I wanted to become a composer and and that so it kind of sprouted from my background as a performer uh, and uh, yeah and then I tried to apply uh, to the conservatory in composition it was a very competitive department but I got in and, and then um it's i will give you a spoiler it's not any less work than being <laughs> a concert pianist <laughs> i don't doubt it I, but, I <laughs> but it's a different kind of work and it's a work that aligns much better with my personality and i'm just madly in love with it and with oh. everything that i do Oh, see, that's wonderful. We like to hear that you're enjoying composing. It never should be, you know, something you hate doing. I would hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like every piece is an emotional roller coaster. I cry and I laugh and I yell at myself and I yell at the computer and all that. But then you throw at the shoes end into of that. Every... Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that was Peter Love. <laughs> I write pieces about people who throw shoes at the cat. <laughs> but that that component you know that that um connection to the material i write and to the people for whom i write you know i always say i don't write for instruments i write for people who play those instruments i i love that aspect of my work and it really that's where the all the emotional uh part of writing comes from because i i'm writing for these people and I'm so invested in it and I feel connected to the people, even if I don't see them for months while I'm writing the music, you know. And then and then I come and sometimes I, I go to the U.S. or something and I see them for the first time after writing this music and they have been rehearsing it. And we're instant friends. And But yeah. there is that deeper connection through the music because I put something into it while writing and they put a lot while learning it. And so... and. My husband, who's a mathematician, he's like, well, you can't be best friends already. And I'm like, you're a mathematician. You will not understand. Just, no. just go and write formulas. <laughs> no, it's been like that with this podcast. Every composer who I've logged on, I'm like, oh, we're friends now. You know, we've spoken yeah. for an hour and we are now friends. It's great. You know, that's how Absolutely. Music works for us. Absolutely. Oh, that's so fun. So that kind of leads me to um, how did you end up composing for horn? Um, since so much of your catalog is, is for our instrument. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, I was, uh, uh, let's see, I was living in Chicago at that time. We we were in Chicago for three years, from 2009 to 2012. And uh, it was 2009, the end of my first year there. And um, I was traveling to the University of Michigan. And I didn't have any music for horn, but I had something for piano. And I emailed their piano professor about whom I've heard from someone else. And I said, I would love to meet with you while I'm in town. Um, and I have this music, maybe I could show it to you. And he wrote back saying that he he was actually going to be out of town. And he listened to my music. And instead of meeting with him, I should meet with their horn professor, Adam Mansworth. Um, and, uh, he said, look, I listened to this piece that you sent me the link to on your website. That was the only recording I had at that 
time, my little rondo for solo piano, little three minute piece from 2002. <laughs> and he said, he said our horn professor would be in love with this music. And instead of seeing me, you need to see him. So write him an email and tell him that the piano professor said that you should meet with me and, and that you will be in love with my music. And I was like, this is going to be the awkwardest email in the world. I'm not writing that email, you know, and I don't have anything for horn, etc. So no, I'm not going to do it. And so next day I'm packing my bags in the evening to go to Ann Arbor. And I receive an email from Adam Unsports. Say, I've, I've told this story so many times, but it's fun. It's fun every time. And he said, our piano professor knocked on my door and said, check this out. And I listened to your piece and I really, really like it. And I really like your playing. And, uh, you know, maybe we could collaborate on something. But how about while you're in town, maybe we could meet for lunch. And he said, I, I have a very busy schedule. My only window is like 10.30 to 11.30. Would you be able to make it? And I looked... <laughs> at the driving directions and all that and I was like okay so that means that I have to leave Chicago at 4 30 a.m sure <laughs> I was wow. like I'll just make it work I'll just make it work let's do it because it's easier than saying actually you know and so yeah so I left Chicago at 4 30 which wasn't actually too bad because there was no traffic oh, and yeah. <laughs> uh yeah and we met and uh we chatted we had a lot in common jazz and classical background he studied with gail williams i studied with dana wilson gail and dana are uh, best of friends you know and, and they had this long history of collaboration and uh yeah and then i gave him a cd with some other recordings of mine that i didn't have on, on my website but 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 i had the recordings and uh for him to get a little bit better acquainted with my music and then he and then I went back home and the next day I received an email from him with the first commission request for oh. horn. So that that was my first uh, piece that was my horn trio, first horn trio out of the woods. And oh, yes. he asked for yeah, he asked for a piece for horn and piano that I would come and play with him. That was the requirement of the commission. He said that you have to be there on piano because I want to play with you and and I really like your style of playing and all that and I was like oh yeah I'll come you know that's that's awesome and I asked whether I could add a violin because I already had the idea um for this piece and he said well yeah sure that's totally fine and um when we were chatting when we were having lunch he mentioned to me that he was a bit frustrated with a lot of composers he commissioned because he would tell them that he wanted very virtuosic music. That was his requirement. He wanted something that with which he could show off. And he has a lot to show off. Like he is such an amazing virtuosic player. Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, and people would just write safer music so that more horn players could play it, which is understandable, but that's not the requirements of the commission. So I was thinking either don't take on the commission or do what you were asked to do as a composer. That's the only <laughs> professional way to go, you know. So I so I told him, yeah, I'll write hard for you. That's like, whatever. It's, that's my comfort zone as well. And so that first piece is much more on the harder side. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, and there are not a lot of people who can play it by comparison. But I became known thanks to that piece and I was starting getting more commissions and then I could write whatever difficulty level I wanted. Mm -hmm. Oh, and that, that one was, was still okay. But then 
later on, he like a year later, he asked me to write snapshots, which is the hardest piece that I've ever written. Uh-huh. And that was the requirement, the request, like over the top is acceptable, he said. So please like really show off. And uh, those two pieces are probably the hardest that I've written, at least in the chamber setting. But then they made me known to other people. And then I told them that I can actually write easier music. It's just about what you ask of me, you know. And uh, so it worked really well. And then I came to Australia after that. And uh, Adam was annoyed with me having to go all the way to Australia because we were working so well together. We were (laughs) performing, having fun, recorded a CD just before I was leaving. We recorded the CD snapshots. And um and uh but i told him that i would come back every couple years and tour and he could come to australia and so i moved to australia and uh first things first i met was peter love and i emailed him and i told him that i worked with adam answers and he responded immediately and he said okay adam answers i know him i've heard him play we gotta meet and we met and we chatted and and then at the end of that meeting he said well how about i commission you a piece for five horns for the Queensland Symphony Orchestra horn section. And um, I told him about Adam and he said, well, how about we bring Adam over and he plays it with us and we do master classes and all that. And uh, Adam, uh, yeah, Adam came to visit and he wanted to visit anyway. And he wanted to visit and play some concerts with me to give me a little bit of a boost. What, you know, was me just having moved to Australia. Um, and that worked really well. And then it kind of started going from <clears throat> there now 25 pieces for corn later. <laughs> hey, you have such an extensive catalog. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's 25 pieces at this stage. And sometimes I'm asked to write a piece and I have to tell people, like if it's, you know, if it's another piece for corn and piano, sometimes I would tell people, unless it's something really specifically Likuda, I would say, um, I would actually like you to discover some new voices to discover, you know, another Likuda. Mm-hmm. So maybe since I'm busy in the next two years, maybe you could go and listen to the music by this person, this person, this person, and see if, if that's going to work. Cause that's, cause that's how Adam discovered me. And then Peter Love discovered me and then everybody else did, you know, so it's, um, yeah, so I'm starting to be a little bit more selective uh, for the sake of others, but I'm still writing a lot for horn and I'm still in love with it. And next year I'm writing a horn concerto for an international consortium, which I'm still supposed to announce. I haven't announced it yet. <laughs> oh no. Well, you know, you've got a little time before this comes out, I promise. So it'll be okay. Maybe we'll yeah. you know, maybe we won't beat you to it. But um so yeah. I'm I'm curious. So somebody would have to come to you with an interesting genre, I guess, um, involving the horn now. It wouldn't just be horn and piano. You want something that's going to be, I don't know, a different medium to play with. Yeah, I mean, it depends. It really depends on what I have on my commission schedule at that time and for whom I'm writing and what the difficulty level is and whatnot. And um, the financial side of things as well, because... Yeah, because I'm a, right now I am a fully freelance composer, so I I cannot take on any teaching or anything else because 
I am busy composing 24 seven. Wow. So, you know, so I need to make sure that it's kind of that, that I can contribute to the family budget in the right way. And absolutely. And, and that all the qualifications that I got that they, yeah, um, that they are rewarded, but, uh, well, you know, a commission like the one that Denise Tryon put forward for low horn and piano, that was very interesting and worked so well. Um, I have so much interest in that piece, Vivid Dreams. And then I made the concerto version of it. And I have so much interest in the concerto version. And, uh, you know, that was a really special project. So I never turned anything down straight away. And I never turned anyone down. I always uh, discuss, I always have a look. And, um, but, but if I do, um, you know, it's, it's a bit tricky. It's, it's a, it's a good position to be in, but it's a bit tricky. Just like with composition contest, I applied and I became winner twice in the virtuoso division. And I really want to try myself in a featured division, but at the same time, I feel like I've already become winner twice. It comes with a nice cash prize, and it's really nice to be announced as a winner. And getting that email from uh, Randy Faust is the best thing ever. You know, of I course. saved both of those emails from 2015 and 2020. I have them both in save oh. save messages folder. But okay, if if I am to apply and apply and apply and win it the third time, which is absolutely possible because it's anonymous. So if I am to win again. What am I going to gain having three victories there as opposed to giving that chance, uh, increasing the chances of someone who is starting, sure. you know? So I'm thinking about that now. And so I want to apply with a concerto at some point. I really do. But uh, but I'm thinking that other than applying every year, I will really wait for a moment and I might apply with when... when um, with a concerto or something like that. Otherwise, I will just step aside. And um, and so I guess with composing, there is a little bit of that too I'm thinking mm-hmm. about. And, and, you know, if it's just, well, we want you to write kind of an easy undergrad level piece for horn and piano. Okay, well, I already have some of those and uh, this would be a great way to discover a new name. Sure. And maybe I could do something that's more that's a bit tricky, uh, you know, and, and yeah. So I guess I'm, I'm thinking in those categories, although I really want to find the time mm-hmm. and write a little book with some of my collaborators in horn and trumpet and trombone and write a book for young players um, where they would write the theory and I would write the music that supports that theory and that helps with different exercises and whatnot so that's one of my areas of interest now and I guess contributing more to the younger players to their catalog Mm -hmm. so I haven't done much of that in the past but I really want to and that's an area that gets overlooked um is the the really young end of it absolutely and the brass trio is kind of on the up and up in terms of being more of an accepted genre um I feel like in the last 20 years it's been kind of a little explosion of music for that repertoire which is really fun um and it's easier than trying to get a whole brass quintet together <laughs> yeah i haven't written a brass trio so that would be an area of interest and woodwind quintet is an area of interest for me as well i haven't written those um and i don't think you've done a low brass trio either right um, no. for horn and tuba and trombone 
No, just horn tuba and piano. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is crikey. Yeah, yeah, crikey. <laughs> yes. It's so fun. I got to play it myself yes. on, on piano uh, with the students from the Ohio State University last month. And it was great fun. Oh, so cool. Really fun. <laughs> I love yeah. that. Oh. So you find there any difficulties when you're composing for horn as opposed to another instrument? I want to say no. It's actually, it's very interesting. It's like riding a bike in a way. So I had to, um, I think... The fact that Adam Answorth didn't have any limitations at all, like I didn't know there was low horn and high horn, and, and, <laughs> and you know, and it's like, um, one one of my favorite stories is okay. So I I started writing for Adam in early 2010, I think, or 2009, and then I wrote those two pieces. Then I wrote Hard to Argue and a couple other pieces, and then I was writing in 2016. I was writing my oratorio scraps from a madman's diary and it has six horns it's a good strong horn section and we were putting it together with uh peter love's students because the the conservatorium here where peter love works is the one um that commissioned it and his students came to me you know youngsters 18 19 year olds and and they came to me and they said this is not playable um some particular section and i said and you know i didn't tell them I know better because I worked with all these cool people and I've been writing for horn for ages, you know. I said, okay, talk to me. And they said, well, this the this low note pen stopped. We can't do it. It's it's below the D and, and it's just it's too much. And I said, is it just you or is it a thing? And they said, no, it's a thing. And I said, so would your professor confirm that playing? They said, yes. And I said, okay, thank you so much for letting me know. I'll have a look. And I asked Peter and he said, yeah, that's, that's the case. And I contacted Adam and I was like, because every time I write a piece, I, I tell people, please tell me if there is anything unplayable or if there is a note that's giving you the grief. So if I can change one note and it makes the entire phrase flow better, I want to change that note. You know? And so I contacted Adam and I said, what the hell? I, I asked you, please tell me if there is anything unplayable. And he said, there was nothing unplayable. And I said, yeah, but there was like a whole bunch of notes <laughs> at the bottom of bass clap <laughs> and stopped. And you didn't tell me it's unplayable. And he said, because I can play it. And I was like, well, <laughs> up to how low? And he said, well, the entire thing. So, you know, <laughs> so he can just do it. Like, whatever, you know. Oh, but, it must be nice. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah oh that's so, great you know, so i could do anything with those two first pieces and i think that really helped but then as i was listening to horn music more and more i felt like horn is very different it's not about the pyrotechnics it's about the integrity of the sound it's about storytelling this mm -hmm. and that and and uh so i started kind of instead of making horn work for me i started learning what i can do to highlight the good strong element of the horn and so i have very different relationships with horn and horn writing than i do with any other instrument and uh and i'm learning so much and you have to learn so much and you have to just know so much about how it works at different difficulty levels in different registers and all that and then you feel like you have this superpower and you want to use it again and again, you know? So it's, it's really cool. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah, it's really cool. So what's your favorite thing about writing for the horn then? The people. 
Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's the truth. Yeah, like I can, I can tell you, I can name a easily a hundred of people who are among my favorite people in the world and they would be horn players, oh. you know, um, and the connection that we have with them and the uh, younger generation, they really treat me like a queen of horn, you know, it's really special. Uh, really really special I don't take it for granted but I enjoy it you know <laughs> because I'm say... putting a lot of work oh of course I mean I can say I was starstruck to start reaching out to you you know I was I, she's written so much music for horn and I've you know recommended it to my students and I've played some of it and you know this is so important yeah I mean you are definitely one of the most prolific I think and and not only prolific but of like top quality horn composers out there right now who is not a horn player herself you know that's part yeah. of it yeah thank you well i think i bring i think i bring a different perspective uh because i'm not a horn player but at the same time quite often i'm asked do you play horn you play horn yourself right and when i say no i often think they're gonna say that explains a lot <laughs> <laughs> but they say no way you're so damn it and it's really nice it's really nice to hear it i mean i want to push push you guys because that's how you progress that's how you learn you know um, and get stronger but at the same time it's like you know I'm I'm doing planks now I, I started doing planks because I strengthened my shoulder and my tummy and I'm increasing the time that I'm standing in the plank uh and I I mean I hate it it's so boring but <laughs> but I want to do it and and the challenge of it makes it more interesting and I'm increasing the time and like two weeks ago, I couldn't stand it at all. I was all shaking. And now I'm, I'm at a minute and a half. And mm -hmm. so so I'm stronger as a result. So I kind of like pushing, um, make, making uh, the performers stronger through my music, but but kind of gradually increasing the difficulty level and writing more and more now at the level that's accessible. Not easy, but accessible mm -hmm. by strong undergraduate players. And I've been getting some uh, high school students even uh, giving a crack to I Threw a Shoe at a Cat, Dreams of a Wombat, and and mm -hmm. uh, some other pieces, um, which is really nice. I, I, I really like that. I love that you're pushing us horn players, because I think a lot of composers tend to steer clear of us. Um, I think it can be a little intimidating because it's it's a perilous instrument, is how I like to describe it. So many things can go wrong. Um, but, you know, and the safe route is to just write another forest piece, you know, where it sounds like a hunting horn. And it's always beautiful music. No one's going to complain if there's more music that way. But, you know, anybody who steps outside of that really idiomatic, um, historically informed, you know, use of the instrument is, is always a blessing on on. Yeah, like you can do so much more. You can yes. do so much more, guys. Yeah, yeah. Great. It's... You know, uh, I get yeah, jealous of the saxophone. You know, the, all the composers yeah. are like, all this cool stuff for saxophone. I'm like, where is the horn body of work? I know that instrument's newer and la da da da. Everybody wants right, but you know, we have potential too. We can do all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I like exploring that and and uh, you know pushing it, but like also in a in a guided way that, yes. that it's not like okay so this is going to be better on trumpet why why write it for horn you know horn is right. or for me it's also a bit tricky because most of the time i've been asked i've been commissioned to approach by and com and commissioned by some of the best horn players and best known horn players in the world and mm -hmm. so i after he having heard enough music for horn i felt like okay so any 
composer can make any performer, any horn player in the world sound like crap. So it's kind of my responsibility. You know, these people, they are not just approaching me and asking me to write music for them. They are putting their uh, reputation in my hands with this music, you know, because they will be premiering it and people's eyes will be on them and ears. And and if I write a whole bunch of squeaky, almost unplayable notes for them, um, they, they, people are not necessarily going to think that a composer did that, you know, they will be <laughs> just kind of judging the performance quality. And so I'm thinking about that and I want them to, <clears throat> I want to shine the light on, on their amazing playing and show them, um, show that they are rock stars and, and uh, my music needs to um, work for that, for that mission, you know. Well, I think that's why you've been so readily adopted by our communities, is we can tell that there's a great respect for the instrument there, as well as a fresh take, and which is always fun. So when you start composing, where do you start? Are you a manuscript paper kind of person? Do you sit down on the piano and start working out melodies? What's your process? Yeah, I use this um, this um, process that I coined. I looked around and I couldn't find anyone else doing it. I, so I had to do my PhD thesis on it. And uh, I coined it as premeditated improvisation. It's kind of a little bit across between jazz improvisation and free improvisation, but it's something else. So basically, I think about the piece, the instrumentation, the mood, the duration, the difficulty level, all these aspects. Quite often I come up with the title first before I even write the first note. And then all these ingredients, they give me the inspiration. And I walk around sometimes for days, sometimes for weeks, depending on the scale of the piece. And then at some point I feel like updates are ready to install. And I sit <laughs> down at the piano and I, well, yeah, like for real, I sit down at the piano and I am ready to record myself. So I record myself and I play, and uh, it's really interesting because like I don't really know what exactly I'm gonna play, but quite often there is like really fast octave unison, and I'm like, how do my hands know how to play with each other? You know, because <laughs> I don't even know what's gonna come out. It's really cool and and fun and interesting, and um, yeah. So I record that, and quite often it's it's on piano, but it doesn't sound like piano music. It sounds like um, you know, sometimes I would be like when I was recording the improvisation for the opening of Hard to Argue, my concertino for five horns, I had to play and I had to sing because you press the note on piano and it starts to die out. But I wanted to have this da 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 da. So how do you do that on piano? You can. So I had to sing along the recording to show that there is a crescendo there, you know? So things like that. And so most of the time I would use piano and I would record these improvisations. And then I listen to them and see what I like, what I don't like, and uh, use that as an inspiration or as direct material. And then I manipulate that and I work with that and I add on to it. Um, sometimes on paper, but lately I've been putting it directly into the computer a lot. I think this year I wrote nine pieces. Wow. And I didn't, and I used one sheet of paper. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It all went into the computer. And, uh, you know, the, the, like I, among those pieces was a 10 minute, really busy, exciting 
be for symphony orchestra over a tour for symphony orchestra called from the land of tomorrow because mm -hmm. right now it's sunday night there but uh, but uh, people in australia are finishing their monday lunch so yeah it's uh, <laughs> from the land of tomorrow yeah and so it so i didn't even use any manuscript manuscript paper to write down um orchestration ideas or anything it was just all coming and i was just putting it all into the computer straight away Oh, nice. um, and then when I listen to the MIDI, I don't hear the MIDI that other people hear. I hear the orchestra. And so mm -hmm. it's it's pretty cool. And, you know, when people say, oh, the vibraphone is so loud. And like, well, yeah, it's the MIDI. Like in real life, the vibraphone sounding louder than four trumpets at the high register will be only if the vibraphone is in this room and trumpets are in a different country. You know? <laughs> <All right>. so, <laughs> Yeah, the trumpets are in Australia, the vibraphones are in the United States. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, so things like that. But um, this premeditated improvisation is massive. And when writing for horn, especially solo horn music, it really helps to use voice improvisation. So I do the same with voice. I have the recordings from my through shoe at the cat and there is a lot of meowage in there oh you're gonna have to publish that someday that's gotta go out in the world i mean come on <laughs> someday yeah i started like it's only my stuff like i'm only set up supposed to use it myself but i started sharing it with performers because it's such an important insight and there's only that much you can put on paper you know and then now I use it at composition seminars because it's just, or like conducting seminars as well, because it's just, it's such a fun insight and, and interesting. And uh, I see how people react to it. People who are playing that music, it's, they're excited when they hear those. They're like, yeah, I know that section. I'm like, yeah. So this is how it all started, you know? So yeah, I'm using it now in uh, seminars and which is interesting because it's, such personal material you know which i never planned to share but i mean whatever well, some, helps understand the music better exactly and someday when people are doing scholarship on your music because it's going to happen if it's not already happening um that's going to be a really invaluable resource um you know the kind of thing that gets you know not necessarily hung up in a museum because i guess you can't hang a recording but you know you know, kind of thing where you put a button and you can hear you know the original and yeah that's going to be critical so that's great i love yeah. it <laughs> so where do you find inspiration for your music i know a lot of them have really deeply personal meanings right um like lesions i yeah. believe and bad neighbors yes yes but uh yeah i uh really like writing programmatic music and uh, you know it's that ding moment where i come up with the title and the music just starts to come out sort of wow. um but uh, it's just really cool and i'm i'm waiting for that moment with the horn concerto i need to find that um spark of um the programmatic inspiration um but uh, i don't know then it just it just works after that i'm inspired by the performers and when they contact me you know 99% of the time when they contact me it means they listen to my other music and they really like it and so there is that um wave of admiration coming from them and uh you know it's a, it's a very special feeling as an artist as a human and uh that in itself is very inspiring and then i like to discuss what i'm about to write with them to make sure we're on the same page mm -hmm. 
and that's usually a really fun chat and and uh, exciting and engaging you know and so yeah i'm just inspired by them usually and then it depends on for whom i'm writing so when i was writing bad neighbors um so we it was 2014 we just recorded part to argue with adam answers here in brisbane we put him on a taxi to go to the airport and peter Love and i were finishing our coffee and Peter Love said, okay, so next piece. And I was like, but we just finished this one. And he's like, next piece. <laughs> no <laughs> he breaks. said, I want you to write. Yeah. And he said, I want you to write a piece for two horns for my colleague here and myself and piano. So you could play with us. And the, the invasion of the Donbass region of Ukraine just happened a couple of days prior to that. And so I thought of Bad Neighbors immediately because it was, of course, on my mind. And, but I didn't have time at that moment, at that moment to write anything because I had a pretty busy commission schedule. And so I got to this piece by early 2017 and surely enough, the bad neighbors were still um, in full swing, you know? And so, and even more um, different emotions in connection to that topic accumulated in that time and mm -hmm. so it really it's like conditions for a good storm you know when everything kind of comes together too much humidity and this and that was like that was bad neighbors and it just came out i i wrote it so quickly but i was so in it every second of my life at that time i was completely uh, impregnated and obsessed with that piece and with lesions I think lesions was coming I think it took a long time coming I wrote a year before I wrote lesions I wrote this oratorio scraps from Madman's Diary and it's about a person's fall into insanity and basically about mental illness and how um, it unfolds and all that and and it's it's aimed to minimize the stigma around mental illness and how it's not it shouldn't be treated any differently by the society than a broken arm or something like that and we should oh. just talk about it and it helps everyone you know and um, yeah and when we were working when I was working on that I saw a lot of parallels with my mom's condition which was multiple sclerosis and and it was like uh, the madman in this oratorio it's like the i described it as a subtitle the mutation of a once healthy mind um the musical depiction of the mutation of a once healthy mind and uh from my mom it was a once healthy body uh and the mutation of a once healthy body that i could see across several decades you know and so when i finished scraps i was thinking is it how much of it is inspired actually by my mom's multiple sclerosis that's a good question you know because i felt like a lot i was really connected to that topic and lesions was commissioned almost immediately after scraps was premiered and i felt like okay i think i should write a piece just about the physical illness now and all the aspects of it and so that's when i wrote lesions and that was very inspiring fired and the, there was lots of tears when writing it you know it's it's full like yeah it's such a massive emotional investment and then mm -hmm. every time I hear it or play the horn and piano version it hits me differently I remember 
I created the horn and piano version to so people could tour it because you don't have clarinet and cello with you most of the time, but you would have a pianist in different cities that you visit. Um, and um, then Peter Laugh and I were playing it at uh, Andy Pelletier School at Bowling Green. And I felt like, okay, so I feel like maybe I'm not ready actually to play this piece because I didn't realize that there is that aspect of it. So writing it is one thing and hearing it, but actually playing it myself right. is hard. And then I realized that every time this piece is being performed, my mom is feeling a little bit worse and worse just because the, the disease is taking over, you know. And now my mom is no longer there and I'm perceiving this piece in yet a different way. But sure. in a way... In a way, there is a relief because she's not struggling anymore. You know, she's, she, uh, yeah. So there is a lot of like emotional and mental elements going into that. But in general, um, I really like to try to connect with people who are commissioning my music and see if I can write something that works for them. And I always like to run the idea by them. Like I don't just write the piece and then send them what came out. Um, and uh, like I ran the idea of Crikey by a whole bunch of my Australian collaborators before <laughs> I told Martin Martin uh, King who commissioned it before I told him about it. I asked all the like the Aussie Aussies, not the Aussies who came here when they were thirty two like me, but the <laughs> ones who who have lived here. You know, I told them and I said, "Is is that okay? Does that work?" And they said, "Sure, yeah, sounds like fun." And so <laughs> then I then I told Martin about it. And uh, with vivid dreams for Denise, you know, I know that she's obsessed with uh, octopus as a creature, as a concept. And and so I asked her, surely a whole bunch of people wrote pieces about octopus for you. And she said, no, actually, no one. I was like, how? How did they not? It was like and, right there. <laughs> and yeah. And so I thought, OK, so I'm writing this piece in, in three movements and one of them just has to be octopus. And then that kind of stirred me in the direction of vivid dreams, and uh, and and I love I I love that piece, and I love how the different movements work and and complement each other, and just the whole. I think that my music overall could be character characterized as vivid dreams, you know, because there is all these different things in there. So anyway, yeah, um, lots of inspiration drawn from titles and and from uh musicians for whom i write so you kind of beat me to the punch with um how would you characterize your compositional language so you would say it's very dream-based <laughs> oh not necessarily dream-based there is a lot of reality in it as well but it's it's the actually that that's the, the only two pieces are dream-based that oh, one funny. and dreams of a wombat <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, um, very programmatic. I love writing programmatic music, but not like not super literal programmatic, uh, a bit um, sophisticated programmatic, I would right. call it. Yeah, and with a good amount of challenge, but uh, with um, there are pieces that are easier to play or movements that are easier to play than others. And uh, I like that. So people should shouldn't listen to snapshots and think okay we, we won't be able to ever play her music no there is a, a bit of something for everyone you know and um, my music generally is very virtuosic but I don't like writing like that for horn I like writing storytelling for horn um, and uh, 
um, rhythmically complex. You can master hemiola and um, um, subdivision by playing the Lakuta. <laughs> Those things exist as well. And it usually comes together nicely. So if you play a trio, for example, sometimes it's harder for you to learn your own part than to when you actually sit down and you start playing together and you hear so many elements in different parts rely on each other and they just interlock and then you're like oh okay yeah we got it it now clicked and it now sits there you know right so here's the fun question who is your favorite composer <laughs> besides yourself it could be it could be you but besides yourself yeah 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 <laughs> yeah well that's a really good question i don't have one favorite composer i have <clears throat> different favorite pieces Mm -hmm. uh and pieces that puzzle me and and you know um i like i love some uh, horn music by daniel schneider i love uh the rite of spring one of my favorite pieces of all time because every time i discover something new i love shostakovich symphonies oh, um, sure. for the drama yeah and uh and you know in in different like contemporary or or diseased um band or symphony orchestra or or solo chamber so i have kind of favorite pieces um in each genre so i can't even answer this question which is ridiculous <laughs> i used to you know you know if you asked me when i was 18 i would just shoot out the answer you know but it's these like very special pieces that um shaped me well nikolai kapustin who wrote uh he wrote these he wrote a lot of music for jazz piano and he wrote these eight concert jazz etudes and uh he he was transformative for me as a composer and as a performer because i brought his the book with his etudes to my teacher and he said there is no i was 16 or so and he said there is no way in hell that you can play that music you are not practicing enough and and it's just not going to happen and then i brought it to my jazz ensemble teacher and she said the same thing and I was really annoyed and I said well I'll show you all and you know Ukrainian so like, <laughs> uh, yeah we can <laughs> and so so in the next two years after that I played six out of eight of those etudes I didn't play the other two because I just didn't really like them but the six that I really liked I played them all I played the living hell out of them and I played one of them on national television Oh, incredible. So, yeah. And so, and and that took me three levels up as a performer. But I also, when I was learning that music and I was playing it, I was having so much fun. And I felt like I'm the luckiest teenager in the world to have my hands on this music, you know. And so I wanted, mm, I want my performers to feel something like that sometimes, you know. Uh, and so I put that into my music as well. So there are different um components of what i put into favorite composer but there's no one person a and it's important that the, the living ones it's important to me that they are nice people as well i cannot like you know if this composer who writes for band and he's best known for writing for band and he's um an absolute star of writing for band and everybody plays him and pays him whatever amount of money he decides today but he's a complete jerk and he is known for 
grooming young girls, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm not going to like his music. In fact, I'm banning concerts that have his music on them. You know, and so it's really important for me that they're good people as well. That's incredible. I think we have that big struggle of trying to separate the art versus the artist. Um, you know, I yeah. every horn player agonizes over how to feel about Wagner. You know, this what are we gonna do? You know, he's entrenched, he's probably not going anywhere. He's dead. But yeah, and he's so, also he was also the product of his time. So right. it's like it's very different. It's very different. The time right. was very, very different. So but in this day and age, we have so I'm much access. Living composers. Right. We have no yeah. excuses anymore. We know what's right and what's wrong. One mm. would hope. So, you know, yeah, exactly. where we are. No, completely agree yeah. with you. And I think that's so important. And a lot of people don't know. It's hard when you're young, I think, and a young performer, and you don't always know the background of these people. It's stuff that's heard through the grapevine. It's not, you know, on their bio and the website of the composer. But um, yeah. yeah. So it's it's up to those of us who do know and who are more established yes. to say, hey, this is not okay. We're not going to condone this behavior and give you space. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this composer, the band composer about whom I was talking, I won't mention the name, but he's one of mm -hmm. the most performed band composers. Um, he, you know, I tell when when conductors invite me to a concert in person, um, and his music is there. I tell them I actually can't come because this person is grooming young girls and I know several of them and they told me about it and it's terrible. And so I want you to know this. And you know, I don't I don't necessarily have any any proof like like police would or something, but I just want you to know that this is happening and that's why I can't come to this concert because I don't feel like supporting this person's actions and so i i try to you know <clears throat> spreading awareness of that behavior is really important because it can save somebody at the same time young people when they are in it they don't well, that's why it's called grooming because they don't know it they believe that person they believe that that person that they are the one and only love mm -hmm. and that person is not a predator so it's really important to kind of um do that for them as well to spread awareness of uh, terrible behavior because they won't see it they they see it from a very narrow um you know they don't have benefit of hindsight yet right and, and all those things yeah yeah exactly so right and how would they yeah. i mean it got yeah. dark so quickly i know it's, we haven't even gotten to the part that's you know historically heavy of part of my podcast yet but you know yeah, this yeah, is yeah. important to talk about so i appreciate you bringing yeah. it up um if, if we yeah. if we don't do those of us who have any kind of power in the system here you know if we don't do our part uh how yeah can we protect the younger generations you know so exactly why we're here <laughs> you know that's why we're doing this podcast yes. is to try and yes face to people who are not you know at the top of the hierarchy here so yeah exactly <laughs> right yeah. um so i guess that you know i'll just keep the heavy part going and we can cycle back to lighter stuff later um do you <laughs> feel like you've had any great challenges in your career musically or compositionally um yes i mean uh, i mean it's all a challenge I mean, <laughs> right. every day is a challenge you know and um um having just come from this tour which was three and a half weeks of wow. just like celebration of of like you, you could call this tour you do you you know it was just <laughs> a celebration of 
of other people celebrating me as a person and my music and it was just so special and amazing but I was all by myself and and I could just you know um I was the in control of my own schedule and all that and that was very liberating and uh having family at home and having to run a tight ship here and take my daughter or telling my husband when to take my daughter to her nine <laughs> dance lessons a week and you know and yeah yeah it's a thing and and it's all her it's not we are not forcing her to do any of it we're actually begging her can we please <laughs> have fewer and she said no I love it all. so Aww. you know it so family can be a challenge and I can see why a lot of people would be like yeah I'll I, I'm not gonna have a family because but then they're also my biggest supporters and and uh sharing every success I have with them is just so special and they inspire me and 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 you know um it's so it's challenging to be a mom composer it's even challenging to be a wife composer but it's also so rewarding that I don't know how to do it differently this is how I do it you know and um um there were several I mean it's in Australia, it's it's tricky um, with female composers and symphony orchestras or or major performing arts organizations. They don't program a lot of Australian composers, and they hardly ever program female composers. And then when you combine Australian composers and female composers, it's like really crumbs, you know. And so I had I wrote this my first orchestral piece professional orchestral piece in 2017 and I just couldn't get it performed uh, since like it had the world premiere by Melbourne Symphony Orchestra our top or orchestra in the country arguably and then after that I couldn't get anyone to perform it and and I told myself at the end of last year that I'm done writing for symphony orchestra I'll just never take on another symphony orchestra commission and this year I took on three symphony orchestra <laughs> commissions isn't that always how saying the word never works out? You're like, okay, all right, yeah. fine. You know? Yeah, I think you have to like wink to yourself and say, I will never do that, you know. <laughs> and, but uh, yeah, but it worked. These three commissions were really special and uh, people treated me amazingly and, oh, and um, very excited about all of them. And I think all of them will, I, I have a hope that all of them will take off um, maybe in the university orchestra world because they are at the right difficulty level and they have the right stories behind them and messages and all that so um that's a challenging thing being a, being an orchestral composer and um I think just in general from the beginning onwards like the first couple of years are extremely hard you have real fire in your belly but it's really hard while you're getting used to it you know um like my husband was um when so he was driving for maybe five years before I started driving and he would get in the car and he would always know whether or not I moved his seat and <laughs> I didn't know I would sit and I would be like holy crap there are other cars around me you know when I was learning <laughs> to drive right I didn't care about the seat you know and um and I feel like in composing there comes a time after a little while where you feel in your seat like your how your seat is that at that exact spot I don't really know how to describe it's, it's it better maybe like you, you find your feel... sweet spot like 
yeah like, yeah and it just gels and you feel like you know what you're gonna do you you know how to do it and you are in control of things i'm the one in control here you know i don't have to sit for 10 hours and wait for inspiration i can actually do something from the start so i think those moments and then you know there are always some jerks um around and you just have to kind of brush them off and work with people whom you admire sure and since you've said that the symphonic world has been maybe a little bit more resistant, at least in Australia, to performing yeah. newer works, do you find that the wind ensemble world, maybe at large, is easier to kind of enter since it's more of a modern genre to begin with? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I feel like wind ensemble has its own frustrations for composers, especially, you know, wind ensemble is quite political as well. And there are a lot of people who... Uh, um, there is a small handful of people who dictate what repertoire is um, in fashion at the moment. And then everybody just plays that. Mm -hmm. Or almost everybody, I should say, because there are some uh, conductors who go against that and they just really choose very carefully. So that's hard. And quite often that music is not good. And it's like, it all sounds the same, but it's the composers who have who studied with these and these composers and their friends and it's the names of the schools and you know all that mm -hmm. uh and that can be frustrating having said that i am shocked that i actually managed to put my foot in the door of the band world because it is so political and so hard and nobody brought me by hand they just kind of liked my music and that just almost never happens that they just like somebody's music and they go with it so that was very special and so i believe i believe in in uh, successes um in the band world that happened like that i think in orchestra it's much harder for that to happen um so i love band for that and a lot of band directors right now look for um they do intentional programming so they uh make sure that they look through catalogs and do and play music by underrepresented composers and and you know I think everybody benefits and and most of all the students the musicians and the audience members so um but I but there is definitely a it's um definitely a movement now among a lot of band directors to program uh, music that's been underrepresented for decades and I really appreciate them for that and then there are also like mainstream band directors who will all play uh, the same fashionable pieces and then there are band directors who want something more in intellectual and more complex and uh to learn more about the person behind the music and all that. And those are the kind of people that I like to work with anyway. And those are the people that um, my music attracts and, but also the people who attract me. So it works really well, even if it means fewer performers, performances overall. Are you at a stage in your career where you're having to reach out to get your music performed or are people approaching you? Um, the past couple of years, most of the time people have been approaching me that's great. And they don't even have to, with my band music, they don't even have to approach me because they can buy it at Murphy Music Press in the mm -hmm. US. So, 
you know, I get a, a six month report from Murphy Music Press and I'm like, okay, so that was a lot of music sold. So all these people were playing my music. I didn't even know. That's amazing, you know. And uh, I used to ask people, how did you find out about my music? And then I stopped because it was becoming a little bit awkward because it's so many people by now, you know. Sure. So it's very special place to be. And if um, I now I used to approach people and it was sometimes it was effective, but most of the time. Um, yeah, I, I recommend it to composers, but it has to be like, there has to be some meaningful connection. But right now I would approach people for two reasons. One is if it just makes sense, like that person just, they just have to like my music. I feel like they just have to like my music and they won't find out about my music unless I tell them. And two is if I'm going to be in their area, like if I'm traveling from Australia, and I will be in Miami, you know. Mm. I should write to Miami band director and tell them that I will be there. And then it's up to them what to do with it. But I want them, I don't want them to be like, oh, you were in the area. I wish you stopped by. And that happens. Sure. You don't that want to miss any opportunities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When I announced my uh, US tour that I just came back from, when I announced it on Facebook, I got five messages from five different people saying, oh, but can you stop by here? Can you stop by New York City? Can you stop by this place and this place and uh, Cleveland? And, and I was like, I'm sorry, this is already all fully booked. But um, how about next time? You know, and so... Right. Now I will actually be writing uh, probably in early January sometime. I will be writing that, guys, I'm planning my next tour. It will be around this and this time. Uh, I will already be hitting these and these places. If you would like me to come, please message me and let me know so we can start talking now and I can incorporate you so that there is no like, oh, we wish you came. So this is kind of how I would approach people now but most of the time they they choose my music and that's very special and I know it's also really important that if people are programming your chamber and solo works that they let you know by sending programs so you can submit it to ASCAB is that the right one yeah well I mean ASCAB is um um the one in the, the U.S. ASCAP and BMI, and they partner with the Australian one, which is called APRA MCOS, uh -huh. and uh, you know, a bunch of letters. Each of them has mean, means some word, but basically, it's the royalties companies. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, we have so sometimes they kind of track down each perform each composer's performances, but it's much better if you do it, and and it's it doesn't cost a performer anything, and it doesn't cost the venue anything because they they pay the annual licensing fee and then the money is taken from that fee that's already set like it doesn't matter how many performances you have it's it's really complicated <laughs> and uh but basically if i can get a program i am very happy and very grateful yeah so long story short, if you're a young performer listening to this, or even not a young performer, because I didn't know this until a couple of years ago, if you're programming yeah. a living composer's work, please reach out to them and send them the information so they know. It's, I think it's really yeah. important. <laughs> yeah, a PDF or even a screenshot of the concert program where you have the um, venue date, name of the performers, and the name of the piece and the composer. That's all we need. And it's it's perfect. And, and then 
most composers want to know if you're playing their music. It's special. We like it. Without our performers, we're just sitting here on a pile of scores, you know? So <laughs> yeah, you a, wouldn't publish the music if you didn't want it performed, right? That's the, the hypothetical yeah, exactly. anyways. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh, great. Um, so to continue in the heavy line here, uh, if you could change any one thing about the music industry, what would you change? Oh, God, one thing. I know, I only gave you one. <laughs> I don't know. That's a hard one. Uh, well, okay. Okay. I'll give you like a big one. It's not realistic, <laughs> but, but I would want people to, you know, how IHS composition contest is anonymous. I would like people to choose their programming anonymously. So they take the music, but they don't know the names of the composers. And they choose the music just based on the sound of the music itself, the lookout of the score, the professionalism of score and part making and all that. And I think if we had that, I don't think it's realistic, um, you know, on the large scale. But I think if we had that, we wouldn't have any issues with diversity to begin with. That's true. There's so much beautiful music being composed by people of all different backgrounds. And we know yeah. that there are systemic you know, problems in yeah. place that prevent people from getting the publicity that they need. Yeah, and there wouldn't be prejudice one way or the other. And, and you know, I, I fully realize that now there are a lot of opportunities for female composers and underrepresented composers as well. So I acknowledge that, but I just think that it would have been so much easier if people just chose the music and then they would reveal to themselves who the composers were and they would be like, oh, but I think that would have been a lot of surprises. And composers who are being performed nonstop, for example, in the band world and in mm -hmm. symphony orchestra world as well, I think they probably would not be very happy with this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the problem with there being a surplus of opportunities now for women and underrepresented composers is that we can't guarantee they're going to be there later. It tends to, in my yeah, exactly. historical knowledge, there tends to be backlash and it snaps back and then we have to do the fight all over again. So the more, yeah. you know, the more ground that we can gain here, the better. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, we're coming to the end here, so we'll move into the fun part now. <laughs> so what hobbies and activities do you do for fun um, outside of music? I know it's not a hobby. It's definitely a career, but, you know, things that are fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, well, <laughs> I go for bike rides, and that's where I write most of my music, actually. So that's not <laughs> <laughs> But uh I really like a good bike ride when I'm stuck with the ideas and it's a great combination of, you know, workout and clean, clearing the um, uh, mental and emotional cleansing. And I actually start coming up with ideas. I uh, go to the gym for classes, which I really enjoy. I feel like it's part of my community. I do um, yoga four times a week and, and I do Zumba twice a week. And I do, and Zumba is like my little family. We have lots of fun dancing together. And uh, I have um, several other classes. So I really like keeping in good shape as best I can. I still feel like I still have a lot of baby fat and my daughter is nine. So I'm trying to, <laughs> yeah. trying to keep myself healthy and in good shape because it's very easy to just sit and write music nonstop. And then you're like, okay, so it's 1 a.m., 
where do I go now? No gym, no healthy food, you know. Tell me about <laughs> it. I'm in the same boat. I'm practicing or I'm writing or I'm teaching or I'm editing podcasts yeah. now. And those are all very stationary. So I completely yeah. understand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so my gym schedule always, that's the first thing that I do. And it's, uh, you know, after dropping my daughter off at school. So I finish with that around 11 a.m. And then I can do everything else. Um, but uh and when we had the lockdown, uh, COVID lockdowns, or or not lockdowns, but the school was like homeschooling, um, we started with PE every day. I told my daughter, we start with physical activity because that will get, get you going for everything else, you know. So I try to do that. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just so busy. I have two guinea pigs, so they're part of my fun stuff, even though I'm allergic to them, but they're super oh, no. cute and... and <laughs> Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Uh, lucky. Um, but uh, I'm, uh, they're super cute and I love looking at them. Um, and uh, what are their names? Yeah. So it's, it's uh, Coochie and Lila. They're oh, cute. super sweet. Yeah, yeah. Super sweet. We've had them for three years now and, and um, they are, they're really funny and they're just hilarious. And oh, they are the centerpiece are... of our living room. Oh, yeah. I love that. Guinea pigs are hilarious. I grew up with them. I have a whole story of how we didn't get rid of one who was, well, didn't get rid of her. We had one who was pregnant. We didn't know it when we got her. And then she had babies and we didn't give away the babies fast enough. And so more babies happened and <sighs> guinea pigs. <laughs> but I loved having yeah. them. They were so much fun. But <laughs> yeah, but they are like, yeah, they are insane. That's why we got ours from the shelter. And you know, the lady kept them there for 10 weeks to make sure none of, neither one of them was pregnant. That would have been nice. Like, if... yeah, you are safe to take them now. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been very nice if the same courtesy had been afforded to me when I was in middle school. Yeah, it's very intense. But yeah, but between, you know, between my family and having a nine year old, and I feel like yes. her dancing is part of my hobby as well because I have to take her to different competitions mm -hmm. and do her hair and all that. And um, just. Uh, yeah, parenthood is not a hobby, but it's a massive part of yes. my life. It's a full-time it job. a lot of time, but it's absolutely it takes a lot of time, but it's so rewarding. And you kind of don't have time for your own hobbies. Like, I'm too tired to <laughs> even read the book. I haven't read a book in years because I'm oh, just no. too tired. And, and like, I go to bed, my brain is finished, like, it's starting a musical phrase. And when I wake up, it finishes that musical phrase and I'm like, okay I don't have my own and this is my own you know this, this, this is who I am now like, I, <laughs> this is just the world that you live in outside of this yeah yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but I think it's a very good place to be you know being so busy like even even though it's stressful and I worry about deadlines all the time and all that um, of course but it's really fun and exciting and and the possibilities are just endless at the moment uh non-stop and 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 i don't have enough time like i don't i haven't i just realized that i haven't announced this um porn concerto consortium yet i have a bunch of people who already bought in but i haven't announced it yet because it's just been so busy and it was delayed a little bit due to covid but mm -hmm. that due, due to the pandemic you know? of course but, um yeah but that's gonna be another hobby you know getting that all done and you kind of at this stage of my career where I am as a composer you kind of need a manager mm -hmm. who would take care of the bookkeeping but I just don't I use my husband as much as I can and as much as he can 
to do all the invoices and stuff like that. But then it's a lot of work. So there is no time left for much else. But luckily, it's all really, really fun. And and I have a big fire in my belly for doing all of this. Right, because you're still sending out um, pieces that people buy the PDFs of yourself, right? I mean, you're the one doing all of that business. Yes, yes. So have to do all of that and keep track of performances and organize Mm -hmm. trips and and, uh, yeah, just... And, and and the trickiest part probably is managing the schedule and the timelines because, you know, I don't I don't have to be anywhere at 8 a.m., right? I mean, I have to take my daughter to school, but I don't have, in terms of work, I don't have to be anywhere at 8 a.m., but that piece has to be finished in three months. And that is a much more difficult thing to manage than being somewhere at 8 a.m. every day. Right. You have to be your own boss. That's really what it comes down to is you're the one in charge. Yeah. You have to hold the line. Mm-hmm. yeah except my daughter is my boss so <laughs> <laughs> well that's fair you know? <laughs> yeah now I have to ask yeah. since you're in Australia there's a stereotype here in the U.S. that every animal in Australia is actively trying to kill you at any given moment is that true <laughs> um yes and no uh, it's uh, a lot of them are super cute um so first time my husband came here uh, for his job interview because we moved here because he got a job at the University of Queensland he came here for his interview and he was walking when it was like getting dark and he saw these crows flying everywhere and he was like wow these are huge crows and then he looked closer and he saw that they were actually bats oh my gosh so they're called yeah they're called flying foxes and they are completely harmless and okay. they're amazing pollinators. So you really need them. And they eat mosquitoes and all that, you know. Yes. But if it's too hot, they get sick. And if they get sick, they fall on the ground. And quite often, somebody would want to help them. And their instinct is to bite. Like if you touch them, right? They're not mm. going to fly to you and bite. But if you pick them up, their sure. instinct is to bite you. And there is no, they're not venomous, but they have so much bacteria that's kind of incomparable with human life right that people just die from that within three days and the doctors can't do anything so you know it's this animal that's not trying to kill you at all but it's one of the most dangerous things that can happen to you then magpies magpies Magpies. wait i've heard they can be aggressive they're more dangerous than snakes and spiders they're very very clever Mm -hmm. and they're really nice 11 months of the year but one month of the year when they're having babies, you are screwed. Like you oh, no. cannot walk anywhere. They're magpies and they're everywhere. So, oh, no. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. So, so like you have to take an alternative bike route and all that because you are going to get hit on the head with blood and stuff. Yeah. It's like, it's dangerous. So those are probably the most dangerous ones. And then, we do have venomous snakes mm-hmm. um but they're not you know they're they're more common on on like on rural properties and the spiders there are venomous spiders and and a, a spider bite would probably hurt a lot but uh there hasn't been a death from from a spider in australia since the since the year i was born so oh wow they have well, that's pre- great yeah they have pre- they have pretty good anti-venom mm-hmm. now and so but you have to be careful and just aware and and you know it's more it's more like yucky like in the summer there are spiders everywhere when it's hot 
And so you can walk into a spider with your face. So you just need to, yeah. So you just need to have like, like if we go for a walk in the evening, we just get a headlamp and just to make sure that we see what's around us. Oh gosh. Like I don't walk, I don't walk under the trees during the summer months just because I just know. I don't, yeah, I don't want that experience, you know, it's like. That's I'm I'm not gonna say crikey, I'm gonna use a different word if that happens to me. So I'm just like <laughs> right. So you just oh. oh I love it. If I walk with my husband, he goes first. <laughs> yes, he doesn't care, he's fine with what and then I my daughter and I walk behind him and it's like okay, all the spiders are on him. Sacrifice so yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah. But there is so many super cute animals here. We have mm-hmm. our possums are so cute like you can look up uh brush tail possum and ring tail possum they are the cutest things Aww. in the world and one has been living on my daughter's balcony since she was born um and uh i don't know if it's the same one or not but it has a nest we destroyed it several times it made it again <laughs> so it's just we're just rolling with it and um budgies are australian native um birds so we have lots of budgies flying all around lorikeets uh, cockatoos mm-hmm. and then different versions of cockatoos rosellas uh, smaller uh, yellow cockatoos um i know those are corellas and rosellas uh, gray and pink and it's just it's gorgeous it's loud but it's gorgeous they're really really pretty and um yeah very cute so cuteness helps we have a similar thing here where we've had um, escaped macaws and parakeets that have formed their own flocks here. And oh, so wow. you know, you'll be walking around in Miami and all of a sudden you get this really loud screech overhead and you're like, oh yeah, there goes the macaws. You know? <laughs> oh, that's super cute. But our weirdest thing, I don't know, have you heard about our falling iguanas? Is this something you're familiar with? Okay, this is great. So yes. every now and then it gets cold here in Miami, cold in, in air quotes here, um, and it stays below 65-ish for multiple days in a row. And the iguanas that have been escaped pets and are not native here but have taken over um, can't handle it. So we get weather channel alerts to watch out for falling iguanas because they will fall out of the palm trees and you have to make sure you don't get hit in the head by an iguana. And that is Miami life summed up in the best possible way that I can give you. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> it is, it is an that. experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that is great. hilarious like bring your iguana umbrella exactly you need like a solid like metal things so they're they can get big they're dinosaurs you know what i mean they're yeah just, the biggest one i've seen was probably three feet across you know it's, it's, they're huge so yeah it's living in miami is its own special thing and i'm from texas so i understand the giant spider thing too because yeah. um we have tarantulas and i always say that if a spider is big enough to cast its own shadow as it walks down the street i'm running the opposite direction so that's you know, <laughs> But apparently tarantulas are are kind of nice and sweet. They're not necessarily to get you. It depends on if they think you're in their house or not. I had one come into my house as a middle schooler and it thought it lived in our laundry room. It did not live in our laundry room. And that's a whole other story that I'll tell you sometime as as it led to me getting my first cat. But that's a whole different thing. But oh my gosh. Well, I think we have run out of time, Kathy, but I cannot possibly say how much I appreciate you coming on the podcast with me. Um, I know you've got this concerto coming up. So are people still able to buy into that if they want to join the consortium? Is that something? Okay, yes, please tell us how to do that. Absolutely. 
Absolutely, they are. And I'm not planning to make it like, obviously, it's going to be a concerto, but I want it to be a storyteller concerto rather than nonstop pyrotechnics um, concerto, because I want more people to have fun with it and play it and uh, showcase their own uh, strong sides of uh, performance. And I'm just writing this piece. This this piece came about, I think it was Stephen Cohen's idea uh, at the IHS in Ghent in Belgium in 2019 and uh, collectively with other horn players from all around the world they kind of all decided that it was a time for a Lakuta concerto and uh, I was like okay yeah I can make that work and so we started putting together consortium in uh, verbally but then the pandemic happened and then um, a whole bunch of things changed a little bit but I kept that idea on the back of my mind, planning that I would do it. And so now uh, Lynette Compton is uh, leading the consortium with me. And I uh, love Lynette. Oh, that's yeah. So yeah. And we want to also kind of shine the light on uh, female soloists as much as we can. We are definitely not going to exclude the male horn players who have been supporting my music for well over a decade. And I love all of them dearly. And they're also least misogynistic men I've ever seen in my life, you know, but uh, I, we also want to include as many female soloists as possible. So we want to make it, you know, big and um, fun and exciting and inclusive. Oh, how incredible. So if people want to join the consortium, do they can find that on your website? Is that a good place to look into that? Uh, I should probably put it up on my website soon, <laughs> but they can always just, yeah, but they can always just email me directly and, and tell me they want to join and I'll send them all the information or they can uh, Facebook me, send me a message on Fabulous. Facebook. I'm very approachable. And if they have any questions about my music in general, they can, uh, that they cannot find the answers to on my website. They can message me on Facebook or email me and I'll be happy to have a chat and to answer any questions and, and send demos or whatever. Wonderful. And I'm sure everyone will appreciate that. Again, it's, it's always scary to reach out to somebody who's so established and you want to make sure that you're not, you know, stepping on toes. But the fact that you're so easy to talk to, I mean, I, you and I became Facebook friends a couple of years ago and it's been so nice to, to develop this. So it's been great. Yeah, So absolutely. again, thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking your time to come talk to me. Um, and I just am thrilled to, to share what you have to say with the horn community so it's my pleasure it's been so much fun and the time just really flies by and and i oh I it's amazing how fast it goes yeah <laughs> i appreciate people like you who give uh composers like me the voice and i really appreciate everyone in the horn community because it really it's such an amazing such a huge and such an amazing warm bunch of uh, people and fantastic players and and uh i feel so so grateful and happy that my work led me to becoming friends with all these amazing people and that's the beauty of music you know yes. the connections we build so this is going to be so great to watch the development of this concerto i cannot wait and uh, if you're a horn player out there please visit or any other instrumentalist please visit kathy's website um she's got so much repertoire for us to check out and you can find uh videos of her music on youtube and i think there's a couple on soundcloud if i'm not mistaken yeah. and yeah there's there's all kinds of different places to to get connected with you so oh great all right well stay tuned listeners for another exciting episode next week and uh, thanks for catching up with us on represent the podcast take care 
This has been Represent the Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us at Spotify and Apple Podcasts or on my website, www.katiebethmckinney.com. If you liked what you heard today, please rate us five stars or leave a review. Thank you for listening.